Done talking with Anthony, better known as Pomp on Twitter, talked about a lot of stuff like should the government with its $2.3 trillion stimulus bail out big corporations and how the heck does that help the little guy? We talked about should we lift the quarantine to get the economy back on track? He made a bold prediction that gold will break 2000 maybe get up as high as 2500 up from 1600 today before coming back down. We also talked about Bitcoin and will more people go to it as the Fed keeps printing more money. That demand shock plus the supply shock, which me, which is happening here in May, Bitcoin is having. Will those two things drive Bitcoin up to a hundred thousand per Bitcoin, up from seven thousand today? We'll have to wait and see. He made that prediction. We talked about should we nationalize PPE and the supply chains that produce PPE, so we're never dependent on China or another country in the next emergency. We talked about what China power will look like after the virus. Are they more powerful? Are they less powerful? What happens to America as a leading superpower? After after this virus. And again, talk about corporate bailouts, bitcoins, quarantines, you name it. We talked about it. Enjoy the episode. Hello, everyone. My guest today, you know, this is like one of those cool things. You just say pomp. It's just a one name sort of deal. He's so well established. It's just pomp. That's all you need to know. You just go on Twitter. It's pomp. It's going to be open. No, his name is Anthony and he's building um, an interesting media business. But more importantly, he's co-founder and partner at Morgan Creek Digital. Writes a daily letter analyzing crypto news for institutional investors. But more importantly, he's got a Substack newsletter doing very well. And his podcast, I've recently saw him have guests on that were not necessarily only in the crypto space. And I said, I want to, anyone who's interviewing people is usually the smartest because they get to interview and learn. And so I said, I got to interview this guy. So Anthony, thank you for joining me. Absolutely. I appreciate you having me. What did I miss? Anything there in the background? I mean, you are a crypto guy at heart, correct? Uh, yeah, I spend um, probably 50% of my time uh, specifically on all the crypto stuff. Uh, before that, I uh, was in the military, built and sold two companies and worked at some of the large tech companies after that. But uh, pretty much have found... Uh, myself spending, you know, majority of my time on, uh, on crypto stuff now, Bitcoin specifically. So let's jump into like today, right? So we're recording this on the third, this will go live in the next two weeks. So we can be really relevant with today. We were joking before we started recording going, man, if we ever got like a letter from the government, you know, the, the president going on CNN going, stay home or you're going to be fined. We would all be like, are you kidding me? This isn't like an authoritative, you know, country It's free. But today, stay home for the virus and no one asks any questions. Is this a scary kind of land we're venturing into? Yeah, it's one of these things where uh, there's a health crisis. And so obviously that, that needs to be addressed. I think what's happening is uh, an over-rotation on the health crisis, which causes the economic crisis. And ultimately what ends up happening is people look around the room and they're trying to figure out who they should listen to, right? And obviously the government uh, has a very uh, authoritarian type uh, position when it comes to stuff like that. And so they're asking people to stay home. They're at some points even, you know, finding people, giving them tickets. Uh, I recently heard uh, there's some restaurants in uh, Illinois, I think it was, where uh, cops actually showed up and arrested people who were inside of a bar that was operating, um, et cetera. So it's just a weird time. Um, and I think we're kind of all figuring it out as we go through this together. So I want to walk through a bunch of different things on this episode with you, ranging from politics to power to ultimately currencies and Bitcoin and alternative asset classes. Um, starting with like the current crisis, right? So we see obviously unemployment going through the roof. Uh, we see the Fed doubling their balance sheet, but nobody is asking the question, when can we stop or how much money can we print before it bites us in the butt? What is the answer to that question? And in your opinion, why is nobody asking that? Uh, I don't have the answer. Um, I tend to think more structurally, uh, just like this is not a good situation. 
Um, and so people, you know, if you zoom out and say like, what's happening, right? We're in a deflationary environment uh, where there was a liquidity crisis. The uh, virus caused, um, you know, a lot of people to say, wait, what's going on? It caused this slowdown in the economy. And so asset prices all sold off and the dollar strengthened because people wanted dollars, right? In times of uncertainty, they want dollars. Um, and so what ends up occurring is all of those other assets uh, end up going to close to a correlation of one. So they all start going down. And we saw that with Bitcoin, gold, you know, treasuries, uh, equities, real estate, er everything across the board. In order to reverse or stabilize the markets, what you've got to do is you've got to strengthen the dollar, right? Or uh, I'm sorry, you got to weaken the dollar. And so how do you do that? You flood the market with dollars. And I think that's what we're seeing them try to do. Uh, at first, when they were announcing, I think the first announcement was like 700 billion in quantitative easing. I, I remember writing something saying like, it's like bringing a water gun to a combat zone. It's just not going to get the job done, right? And so I started talking, saying that they were going to have to release like a monetary stimulus bomb. And to me, it was going to be, you know, I don't know, one, two, three trillion dollars. It was my initial thought. They came out and they announced uh, two trillion dollars. Uh, but by the time they actually announced it, I had already said, you know, look, I think it's going to end up being five plus trillion dollars needed to get out of this. Like the unemployment is going to be way worse than uh, we originally thought. Like literally, we are all sitting at home and the economy is not going to turn around until we get out of our homes. And so every week that we're sitting at home, it's just getting worse and worse. And so what I think we're seeing right now is the Fed's fighting a deflation. And you just, they're not going to win, right? Until they start printing trillions and trillions of dollars. Um, and when they do that, we will eventually get back into an inflationary environment. And I think that's where it really, it brings into question, like, what is that long-term impact of all the printing that goes on or the liquidity that's injected in the economy in the short term? Mm -hmm. Okay. So with that being the case, if you're running the country today, do you say everyone stop the quarantine, get back to work right now? Yeah. So <laughs> this is what the big thing that I keep going back to is like, the health crisis is causing an economic crisis. So you have two separate crises. And right now, I think a lot of people are like drawing a line in the sand and they're saying like, that's a black and white scenario. Either you save the healthcare system and the economy fails or you save the economy and a bunch of people die. And I actually don't think that's the right framework to view the, the problem set through. I think instead what you have to realize is those two things are intertwined and the solution is not going to be black or white. You don't have to choose between economy or healthcare. There's some sort of gray area in between. And so, you know, there's people who are way smarter than me that have way more uh, data than I have and a better understanding of the resources we have uh, that are come up with the exact solution. But a couple of potential options they could pursue would be things like um, on one extreme end, they could literally say, hey, if you're under the age of 45, you're less likely to get this and die from it. This is a time of war. We are literally at war with a virus and we are at war economically with ourselves. We need people to serve their country. And the service of country is not to go fight in some war in a foreign land. It is to go back to work with a health crisis looming. So you may actually get sick, but we need you to volunteer for that risk and go into work. Now, that's an extreme example. I don't think that we would see them do that, but that's kind of one end. On the other end of the spectrum, what they could literally say is, we are going to take people who are sick, uh, people who are old, people with pre-existing conditions, et cetera, they're all going to be quarantined and shelter in place like we have now. We then are going to take our younger population, we're going to send them back to work. But what we are going to also do is we're going to ensure that they don't interact with those higher 
um, probability um, demographics, right? So if you live at home and your grandparents there, maybe the government says to you, hey, you're going to go to work, but you're not going to come home every night. Instead, we're going to put you up in a hotel uh, around the area so that you don't actually cross-pollinate uh, potentially the disease, et cetera. So again, like these are two examples that are actually on pretty far ends of the spectrum. But what I think you've got to realize is we can't solve the problem until you get people back to work. But that doesn't mean 100% of people have to go back to work. And also, it doesn't mean that all of a sudden we just ignore the virus, right? Like the virus is killing people. And so we've got to address kind of both crises at the same time. Because when you have a black and white solution for a problem that's not black and white, what ends up happening is I actually think you do a lot of damage uh, over the long run. Yep. Look, I want to put this caveat out before I ask the next question. I am not a, a health person. I don't know that you are, unless you're going to surprise me and say you are a PhD. Okay. So we are not, but I'm going to set up a question with some very serious assumptions. I want us to suspend doubt that those assumptions are correct for a second and just roll with them. Sweden is, is taking the approach that we don't want to shut the economy down. We are going to take the approach that the mortality rate is actually about 1.53% before the, the, before Sweden as a whole reaches herd immunity, meaning enough the citizens have built the antibodies where the virus has nowhere else to spread. Now you do, people die, 1.53% die. So again, underscore here is we are not health professionals, but if you were the president of the United States and you believed accurately that the mortality rate was 1.53%, um, would you open and, and essentially push everyone like you just articulated back into the economy, get things cranking again in order to try and you know, risk life loss, but also minimize economic loss? Yeah. I mean, look, th these are the complex decisions that people are facing right now. And, and I'll caveat kind of all of this with, I don't know if there is a right answer, right? I actually think that there's like a balance between um, it's kind of addressing a lot of these things. Because the second people hear, oh my God, you know, in the United States, 1.5%, I think it'd be like what? 4.4 million. Yeah. Four, four and a half uh, million people. Like, Four and a half million people dying is just unacceptable in the eyes of majority of uh, the country, right? Now, when you get into that, what you start to see, and, and you know, I know you said to kind of accept the assumptions, one of the things that um, I personally think we're not going to get this for probably three to five years, but we're going to look back three to five years from now, we're going to say the death rates that were originally thought are going to be nowhere near where they end up. And the reason why I say that is- Lower or higher? I think they'll be much lower than what we th what we think they are. And the big uh, kind of contributing factor to that is uh, about a week and a half ago, uh, was, was the last numbers I saw, the United States had only tested about 850,000 people in the US. And 850,000 people out of 330 million, give or take, right? And so when you see that, what ends up occurring is not only are you only testing 0.3% of the population, but you're also only testing for the most part, people who feel sick, people who come in and say, I think I have it. Can you please test me? So there's a selection bias. Now, other places in uh, the world, some have been really, really bad, like Italy, right? Obviously having thousands of deaths. Uh, but then you look under that data and you realize, wait a second, 99% at one point of all of the deaths in Italy had either some other health concern or a pre-existing condition. It's unclear how many of them died specifically from the virus or the virus, they, they were positive with the virus at the time of death, but they actually died for some other reason. I'm not a health professional, I don't know. But what I'm getting at here is every single one of these data points, it's very quick, you can understand um, or point out, it's bad data right? It's the best data we have. So we have to make decisions with that data, but it's bad data. And in hindsight, we're going to have much more clarity, obviously, as to what the actual data was at the time. We just don't have that benefit today. And so what I think you're seeing happen in the uh, United States specifically is we're over-rotating out of an abundance of caution. 
So if you're going to, you know, over rotate one way or the other, it's probably you want to over rotate on the abundance of caution and the protection of life. So what you do is you send everyone home, right? As you get more data and more clarity and more accuracy, I think then what you start to realize is, okay, people under the age of 30, the death rate is, you know, 0.1%. It's about, it's about the flu, let's say, uh, is the numbers I've seen. If that's the case, everyone under the age of 30, go back into the workforce. If you uh, live with somebody who could be at a higher uh, propensity for in, being infected, don't go home. Just that alone, right? I don't know how many people that is in the labor force, but you start to quickly uh, generate economic activity and you start to try to chip away at, um, you can't prevent the economic uh, crisis, but I think that you can mitigate uh, some portion of it uh, while also still addressing the health case. And so I think that's what some of these countries are doing. Some are obviously doing it better than others. I just think in the US, we've kind of over-rotated on the health side. Now that we have an understanding there, we got to kind of balance it back out and address both crises uh, or we'll end up in a really bad place. As of April 6, the stock market in terms of lost capitalization was about 11.5 trillion relative to about 10,000 deaths. If you then put essentially a price per death, right, in lost economic gains, about 1.2 billion in lost economic, you know, stock market capitalization per death. It's a hell of a question to ask, right? But the question does come up, how do you value a life? And it's a very real question. Yeah. So I, I wish that I remembered who was talking about this on Twitter. And uh, if they're listening, I apologize for, for not um, giving them the credit for it. Uh, so this is not my idea. But basically what they took this analysis, they took it one step further and they said, is it just that every life is actually equal? Right? Do you, can you put the same quote unquote dollar amount on a life of somebody at the end of life versus somebody who's 25 years old? Right. And, and I tend to think that it's unlikely that you would put the same value, right? Especially an economic output standpoint on every single life. So I don't know what the right framework is. I don't understand, you know, what equation you could use to kind of derive that value. Um, but I think that's the first thing is you can't just paint like a broad stroke of every life is equal to the same amount. Then second on, on top of that is again, it comes down to uh, what, what are we as a country? Right. And, and I think that this is like a, a big existential question right now of if you're a 100% capitalistic society, do you optimize for the economic uh, superiority and the economic output over the life of individual citizens? If you are a 100% socialist society, right, you optimize for the life over the economic output. And so I think what ends up happening is the United States isn't either one of those. The United States is somewhere in between. And we're almost like in puberty to some degree figure out like, what are we? Because I don't think that we actually have an answer to that yet. And if we don't know what we are, meaning how much do we value the economic versus the life, like the exact question you're asking, I don't think that we can actually put it into execution. And so it's almost like we're like figuring it out on the fly. And what you're seeing is literally healthcare officials are doing calculations on a virus um, and the, the impact on the loss of life. At the same time, economists and, and the Federal Reserve, et cetera, are doing economic uh, analysis, but there's not a lot of um, talking between those groups. Mm -hmm. Like we don't want to take economic advice from doctors, right? But I also don't want to take healthcare advice from economists, right? And so like, we, we just need to kind of work together, I think. And unfortunately, this isn't something where we have the benefit of like, hey, this event's going to happen in two years. Let's put together a task force. Let's be prepared. Let's run, you know, kind of war game scenarios, all this stuff. Instead, it's like, oh shit, we got to shut down the economy. You know, we've got uh, three days to figure this out. Like cross your fingers and hope we get it right. I think that's kind of what we're seeing. And, you know, frankly, they're probably doing a pretty good job given the circumstances. Um, obviously, there will be people complain about what they could have done better or what they should be doing. But for the most part, like, 
there looks like a lot of the healthcare data is improving or, or at least kind of flattening, uh, which is an encouraging sign. Uh, obviously, the economic data is really, really horrifying. Um, the, the saving grace may be that there is some sort of uh, quicker than expected recovery. Uh, I tend not to believe that, but, but it's still a possibility. And so we'll kind of see where we end up here. When you look at history, um, specifically politicians that really change a, a country or an empire, uh, you know, feudalist society, whatever you want to call it, you know, there's a common and, and a, you know, a phrase that you see among history books repeated, which is never waste a good crisis. In fact, many times to usher in serious change, you need some sort of crisis. And this has pushed conspiracy theorists to many times even associate massive crises with, oh my gosh, the government did this to usher in a crisis. Now, I'm not saying that any of I'm not trying to speculate there, but my point is this. Um, the way that we're measuring deaths in the U.S., there was a report this morning basically saying anyone you know, regardless of like symptoms or anything that's like dying right around that we're attributing to coronavirus to potentially make the death rate from a government perspective look much higher than it is because that might enable us to do something which one of your past guests on your show, Chamath said, it might make the government potentially sell a biometric version of the Patriot Act after this much easier, right? Yeah. To, what, to what degree as a citizen do we have to watch this kind of maneuvering play out over the next several weeks? Yeah, this is something that um, it's a super sensitive topic, right? So I always caveat this with, uh, I, I frankly don't care who's right and wrong. I just want to find the truth, right? What I mean by that is- We're, like, we're equal there. We're the it, does, it doesn't matter. It's not a political thing. It's not. It's just, what is the actual facts? And so I'll, give, I'll use an example uh, to kind of highlight the, the problem you're describing. So there was an infant in uh, Chicago uh, that died. The in, and, and literally, in, you know, sub one and a half years old or whatever, whatever the, the uh, definition of an infant is. And the infant tested positive for COVID-19. So when I saw the initial report was infant dies with COVID-19, within an hour, all over social media, infant dies from COVID-19. Those two words are very nuanced difference, but they mean all of the difference when it comes to how do you categorize that death. Right. And if an infant now is dying from the virus, that would test a lot of the assumptions or, or disprove a lot of the assumptions around the impact on young children, right? The death uh, and mortality and all this kind of stuff. If instead it's just an infant died because and, and also had the virus, but not because of the virus, then that would fit more in line with the assumptions that I think most people, epidemiologists, doctors, et cetera, hold. So I started to look into more and more of it. And the investigation was still ongoing um, at the time that all this was going on, and the baby had other complications. So the way what I took away from it was, regardless of the answer, the way that this stuff is getting reported is flawed. Because in fact, what we saw was two separate narratives being publicly displayed by journalists and, and, and the media, but the investigation of the death inside of the healthcare system was still ongoing. So they had not reached a conclusion yet. And so what ends up occurring to your point is, it's really important how that death gets categorized. Yep. If that death counts as part of the data, but he, the baby actually didn't die because of the virus, well, then maybe the numbers are actually inflated, right? And so if you look at the two important data points when it comes to the virus, there's the deaths 
and then the number of people who are infected. And those two numbers are pretty much the basis for a lot of the analysis we see, both in the United States and, and, uh, and foreign um, you know, geog- geographies. So if all of a sudden, I think most people re- have recognized, okay, we know that we don't know how many people are infected because we aren't doing enough testing. So that number is, you know, kind of has an asterisk on it, and it's probably undercounting the number of infected. But for the most part, I think people actually believe the death number, right? Mm-hmm. When you say, hey, 10,000 people have died in the United States, I think we all generally like, okay, well, there, there's like a dead body, right? So yep. like, of course, the, that person has died. But now what's starting to happen is that this whole idea of, well, are people being counted as dead who have tested positive, but they didn't necessarily die from the virus? Again, I'm not a healthcare professional, so that nuance is like a super gray area to me. But I do think that it reiterates the point that people need to uh, understand and really be fanatical about making sure the data they're looking at is as accurate as possible. Because I think that what we see is, you know, millions of people could die, oh, 50,000 people could die. Well, I don't want anyone to die, but that's a pretty big range for us to be making decisions on, you know, what businesses should be shut down, what shouldn't, should people be allowed to travel, should they not? Like all of that is, um, you know, just big, big decisions that have second and third order effects um, that also are not just leading to death, right? I interviewed Tim Kennedy and he said, this isn't economy versus lives. He goes, this is lives versus lives. And what he meant was when economic downturns occur, it leads to increases in um, alcohol and drug abuse, homelessness, suicides, you know, all of these things. And so he goes, actually, what you could have is you could have a situation where more people are hurt by the cure than the actual virus. I'm not necessarily claiming that's true, again, because I don't understand the data well enough and think that there's enough accuracy to make these decisions. But somebody has to, and that's what we're watching both health, healthcare and economic leaders do today. Yeah, I mean, there is a again. I am, I am in this moment of this time. I am the ultimate consumer, and I try not to come up with plans to project. I just try and gather. I'm like a squirrel filling his cheeks with nuts. I just want to gather. And so, one of the things I looked at was exactly this, which is the, the let's look at the the unemployment rate. Right? There's a study done after 08 by Yale that essentially contributed 45,000 suicide deaths per one percent increase in unemployment. So if we just go from 4% unemployment to 20% unemployment, 16 times 45,000 deaths, you can do the math. That's way more than what has died from the actual virus today. So again, I don't know the right or wrong answers, but it is a, it is a bear of a math equation to try and figure out how all these things move together. Yeah. And, and part of it too is like, um, you know, the unemployment number uh, that recently came out. So it was 3.28 million uh, three weeks ago, 6.6 last week, uh, 6.6 was the most recent number as well. So you're talking about, uh, what is that, like uh, 16 and a half million, give or take, of uh, net new uh, unemployment claims. And so when you look at that number, you're like, wow, that's a lot of people. That's way low in my opinion though. Completely agree. So two two components to it. One is it's definitely undercounting because you're not getting gig workers, freelancers, self-employed, um, you know, people on furlough, all that kind of stuff. And then two, what actually is scaring me, and, and again, we only have two data points, so I don't know this for sure, but what I'm now starting to pay attention to is this idea that maybe 6.6 million is actually the capacity the system can process in a given week. So if 9 million people tried to uh, report last week and only 6.6 million got through because of the log jam, the call centers, all these things couldn't handle more capacity, we booked 6.6 million. 
Well, why is the number the exact same this week? Again, 6.6 million. Is that the upper limit of what the systems can handle? And until we provide technological solutions or more manpower to process these claims, we'll just keep seeing 6.6 kind of print week after week. I don't know, right? So we get, we need some more data here or to better understand those log jams, but we definitely know more people are trying to file the claims than what's actually being reported. And so I think the situation is way worse. Now that leads to, okay, well, how, how bad is it and how quickly can we recover, right? Yep. And, and we just don't know that information yet. So Carac, two trillion, another two point three trillion allocated today, this morning. A big piece of that is twelve hundred dollar checks to folks and five hundred for children. Yang, obviously, this you know idea of UBI started getting very popular as part of his platform running for president. We're now ironically seeing a Republican-run government now handing checks out to its citizens. Couple questions here. Number one, do you think that's the right answer? Just just give money out and see what happens. And two, this is something that's gonna be very hard to stop doing because it's negative press when you have to stop giving people free money. And Donald Trump managing that press is probably something he'd rather just keep doing. Does Donald Trump usher in as a, you know, UBI? Yeah. So I'll take those in reverse. Uh, If you start, I don't think you can stop. Um, The thing that they're doing to mitigate that risk, is it's a one-time payment, right? In Canada, we're seeing, I think it's $2,000 a month for four months. Something that looks more like a UBI. I think Australia as well, it's like three for six months or something. Uh, don't quote back numbers, but basically it's a larger check for multiple months in a row. In the US, I think it was very intentional. We're going to give you a one check, right? And this isn't the first time they've done that in 2008. I think there was a, it was a $450 uh, tax credit, I think it was, uh, under George Bush. And so what you end up getting is if they were to go to, we're going to give you a check every month for multiple months in a row, I don't think they could stop, right? So to your point, like I definitely think that's true. Uh, in terms of, is this the answer? I'm of the belief of you have to go to one or the other extreme. You can't kind of put one foot in the water here. So either you give everybody zero and you just say, we are not going to give money. We are not even going to go down that path. And people need to go, you know, file for unemployment or get a job, you know, do, do whatever they need to do, but it's not going to come from relief with the government through actual checks, or you got to go full UBI. There's no in between here, right? Because basically what you're doing is if you give $12,000 or $1,200 to somebody, the uh, I think it's the median apartment rent in the United States is $1,000 a month. So basically 1200 bucks is like you could pay your rent at an apartment and maybe buy groceries for you know two to four weeks. But what happens next month and the month after that, right? And how long does the recovery happen? So unless they're actually expecting to continue to um, you know announce other stimulus bills, which I, I do think that they will announce other stimulus packages, but are they going to just have like another one-time payment, another one-time payment, and it ends up almost being monthly checks, but they just call them one-time payments? Maybe. I tend to think that they actually think this is a one-time payment though. And I just don't see $1,200 being the material uh, difference between I'm fully employed and I'm kind of, you know, roaring in the good times. And now all of a sudden I'm unemployed and we're going into this kind of financial recession or depression or whatever it ends up being. Uh, and so $1,200 is going to make or break me. I just don't see that being the, the uh, solution. Mm-hmm. So that's one part of the stimulus. The second part is essentially the government potentially getting involved in equities. And actually, you know, you know, I'm not just talking your basic since we've seen since 08, you know, the mortgage-backed securities. I'm talking like United Airlines, do we need to bail you out? Um, is this the right approach? Uh, well, there's two points on this uh, for me. One is uh, I, I call it Jerry stock picker. Like, is Jerome Powell going to go put on his stock picker hat and start picking individual securities and and literally playing kingmaker? I'll save you, but you're going to fail. I'm going to save you. You're going to fail. Uh, I tend to think that's probably not going to happen. Uh, but then again, this morning they announced they're going to start buying ETFs and high yield, you know, basically junk bond ETFs. 
so who the hell knows what, what they're going to end up doing. Um, but I don't think that's a good strategy to put like the Federal Reserve or even an asset manager in a position to pick individual securities. Um, but that is one option that they could do. The second piece of this is on like the corporate bailout side. And so I think, um, you know, Mark Cuban and uh, I see eye to eye completely on this, which is um, the reason why corporations are running to the government is because they believe that the government's the idiot in the room, right? If you're a corporation right now and you probably mismanaged your cash at some point, right? Like the airlines mismanaged cash because they did all the, bu all the buybacks. I'm not against buybacks. I think that they're fine, right? Whatever. But now you can't then say, oh, we don't have any money. Well, you put all the money in the shareholders' pockets. So you have to now go to debtor equity markets to shore up your balance sheet. The difference here is that the corporations believe they're worth more money than the market believes. So the investment community is saying, I'll buy your company. Right, United Airlines, I will buy that company personally. Yeah, a big private equity company saying, I'll come in and save you, right? A, a million bucks, 10 million bucks, yep. 100 million bucks, a billion dollar valuation. Whatever the number is, there's a market to be made there. But the corporate executives believe that the company's worth more than what the investors believe it's worth. So there's a dislocation or a disagreement on valuation. And so instead, what happens is the corporation then turns around and says, oh, well, who's the dumbest investor that we could find? Who's going to give us the most attractive deal we could get? Well, the U.S. government will. And so literally, you, that's where you end up with the Boeing CEO on television saying, I'll take the stimulus money, but they're not getting equity. Okay, well, the government should tell them to go kick rocks. Yep. Right? Your company's going to fail. And by the way, if you want to shore up your balance sheet, you should have to go to the debtor equity markets and get the capital. Like that's how, that's the cost of doing business. And so I don't think we want to get in this world where like corporations believe in the good times, take as much risk as possible because if it goes wrong, I'll just run to the government and the government will bail me out. Cause you might as well just nationalize all the industries and all the companies and just say the government owns everything. And you know, that's how we operate. Mm -hmm. I just don't think that that's the, the right answer here. Um, but uh, you know, again, are we a capitalistic society or are we trending more towards that socialist side um, where we don't care just about uh, kind of the top dollar type uh, metrics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't know the right answer either. It sounds like you're kind of ingesting like I am, and maybe don't have the right prescription myself. But what I do say is, if you do have the government going and giving these big bailouts, you've got to figure out a way for the American people to essentially own equity in those companies, including the 50% of Americans that don't currently participate in the equity markets, because every bailout benefits people with financial assets and nobody else, because that's where the bailout money is going. There has to be a balance. Absolutely. Look, the, the bottom 50% of Americans get screwed uh, multiple times throughout these crises, right? They're the ones who are most likely to get their civil liberties and personal freedoms taken. They're the ones who are most likely to be sitting in cash because they don't have, you know, more than 400 bucks for an emergency payment. They own no investment assets. Uh, so all the inflation that'll hit after uh, we switch from the deflationary to an inflationary environment, they'll get crushed on that. Uh, and then on top of that, all of the investors who make money coming out of this because they buy the real assets that benefit from that inflation, the bottom 50% don't own them, right? Mm -hmm. So they miss out on their, on the returns. So it's kind of like they just get whacked over and over and over again. And if you go back to 2008 and you look at that wealth inequality gap, it just widened. Right. Yep. And I think the same thing's going to happen here, uh, unfortunately, is we're just going to continue to see a widening of that wealth inequality gap because the, the rich, right, and it's not even the top 50%, it's like the top 2% understand how the game is played and they're well positioned to benefit from these situations. Whereas the bottom 50% or so, they just get crushed uh, both by the problem and by the solution. You see Bill Ackman go on CNBC and go on a 28 minute rant about how hell is coming, right? And then he turns around, he's essentially buying stuff four days later, making 2 billion on this thing. I'm going, number one, how does CNBC let this happen? Number two, he knows he's playing the game. And my gosh, you have to have a big pair of you know what to do that on national TV when you know the majority of Americans can't take advantage of the same thing things.
Yeah, look, p- part of uh, what the way I look at a lot of the asset management firms, right? So Bill Ackman's a perfect example. Like he clarified later on that he'd already sold some of the position and all the stuff. And and when you look, it's like, hey, he made a twenty-seven dollar, a twenty-seven million dollar bet, and he pocketed like two point six billion dollars. That sounds absurd uh, to the average person. But then when you look at it and you say, oh, this was a hedge, and he's only up about I think like seven percent for the year. It's like, okay, you know what? Like actually he was just uh, participating in risk management and uh, he was both long and short at the same time. So like you can twist the facts, I think, to make it sound really bad or make it sound not so um, bad. I'm kind of in the middle, right? Like there's a little bit of both going on there. Um, But what I do wish was happening is the asset managers that were making money, I really wish that they were the ones who were managing public pension money and bailing out these pensions because there's a lot of unfunded pensions in the United States. Uh, Unfortunately, in most of the cases, the best asset management firms have not taken public pension money because they're scared of the Freedom of Information Act request. And so therefore, they don't have the uh, the people who need it the most, the uh, police officers, the firefighters, the teachers. teachers. Their, their pension money is not actually with the best investors because they don't want to take the pension um, LP money. And therefore, as the best investors make money coming out of this, again, it's another um, kind of perspective where those individuals don't benefit from even in their pensions being aligned with the best managers. They're in kind of tier two or tier three managers. Um, and, and so it's just kind of this really complex world where what we see is a widening of the wealth inequality gap and the bottom 50% lose. Mm-hmm. But, so um, moving from that into supply chains because of this and what you're going to see happening in China, I want to start this question off by referencing Ray Dalio's YouTube video where he does a great job of simplifying the economy for everybody. The short version is the economy is made up of three things. It will always get more productive. And as that productivity curve continues to go up and to the right, you have two things going around it, a short-term debt cycle and a long-term debt cycle. My question to you is the following. Um, Should the U.S. government and all governments around the world mandate, nationalize critical uh, supply chains like what produce masks so that the next pandemic, we are not reliant on someone like China to make sure we can get PPE for our people. In other words, productivity will go down. The price per mask will increase because labor is more expensive to produce that mask in the US than China. However, we need a durable country and to be durable, you have to sacrifice productivity gains. Yeah. So another way to look at this, uh, Chamath um, really, I think, hammered it home where he said, we pursued being a uh, efficient economy and we gave up our resilience. So you either can be an efficient economy, right, or I think what you're describing there, kind of lower the cost of production as much as you can. Uh, and what you give up is that uh, resilience or that durability. Now, what I, what I think is one answer is definitely the government could step in and say, we're going to legitimately nationalize. We're going to take this over. We're going to run it on our soil. And like, we're in charge. Another solution that's a little, a little bit of a watered-down version of that is to change the incentive structure. So what is one way where you could get people to come back on shore, operate within the United States, and be competitive on pricing without the government actually taking over? Maybe it's tax breaks for certain types of uh, corporations or, or uh, business lines that are deemed national security important. Things like that where what you can do from a government standpoint is you're basically the the central planner to some degree, right? You can pull a bunch of strings that nobody else can pull. And so can you go into your bag of tools and get people through incentives to come back, but not actually take over the corporation, right? Mm Because I think the second you get into a world where they're actually nationalizing companies, uh, nationalizing markets or nationalizing industries, 
that's a slippery slope where we all know where it ends and it's not pretty. Mm -hmm. And so instead, what you can do is you can keep a lot of what's built America, right? It's entrepreneurship, ingenuity, and innovation. That is what has built America and made it what it is. Instead, let's continue to incentivize that. Let's get the resources in the hands of the entrepreneurs who can do it. And then government, get out of the way. Mm-hmm. Right. That, that's that's what we're the best at. When America's at its best, that's when uh, we are absolutely you know operating at 100 percent. And so I think that that's what they've got to do here for a lot of these, because the supply chain right has become a national security concern. Because imagine if we couldn't actually get the masks. Yep. We'd be screwed. Yep. Right. Yeah. There's plenty of companies here who all of a sudden jumped in kind of warlike effort. They're building ventilators, they're building masks, they're doing all stuff. But it's not the same as being able to just to pick up the phone, place an order and bam, it's there at your door in three days. Right. Yep. And so I think that these are the types of conversations that people are going to start having. Um, and the government can be helpful by changing the incentive structure rather than nationalizing the companies or industries. Yep. Let's talk about removing government, right? If you are libertarian, if you are kind of more on the fiscally conservative side, this is something that you're really thinking a lot about right now, but it's hard to make the average American understand that our national GDP is about 20 trillion and our national debt is about 22 or about 106% of GDP. Said that differently, Goldman Sachs this morning says they expect GDP drops this year to be somewhere around maybe 15 to 20%. So that would mean going from 20 trillion, again, down to about 15 trillion. Uh, the stimulus alone is six to eight trillion, which means the government is essentially going to be 60 to 80% of the total national GDP potentially in 2020. That's a socialist country. It is. And this is the part that, again, I know it's super sensitive. I know it's super controversial because there's a a stigma uh, associated with the word socialism. Uh, What I continue to remind people is socialism is merely a word that describes something that exists. Right. And capitalism does the same thing. They're, they're not good or bad. They just are. So it's, a, it's a label for to make it easier to chat about. It, it's literally just there's a it has a definition to describe something. And so what ends up happening is the situation you just described is not a capitalistic society by definition. It is a socialist society by definition. And so what we have to, again, that's why I keep going back to this idea of like, we have to have a conversation with ourselves and ask ourselves, who are we, right? Or some other people would say like, ask ourselves, what do we want to be when we grow up? I tend to think we already grew up and now we got to ask ourselves, who are we? Um, And every day what it's looking like is people are much more socialist than they are capitalist. I, I joke all the time, say all the capitalists on Wall Street become socialists in times of crisis. And so what occurs when that happens is that we simply rely on the government. Again, that's fine if that's the way that the majority of people wanna go. I tend to believe that's not the way the majority of people wanna go. They actually want smaller government, they want more capitalism, and so therefore they think that there's another path for us to pursue. Right now in times of crisis, it's super easy uh, to kind of get people to take the socialist uh, um, you know, kind of uh, solutions or, or uh, results simply because their their uh, will has been broken. Right, Robert Kiyosaki came on uh, the podcast and he talked about the whole playbook is during a time of crisis, you wait until the American people's will has been broken. And then once their will has been broken and they absolutely are as desperate as possible, that's when you bail them out. And when you bail them out, it becomes this socialist thing. You essentially own them, yeah. Yeah. And, and look, this stuff is all super scary shit, right? Like we can't imagine we're having this conversation in the United States today in 2020, but that's where we are. And I think people just have to have a frank, honest conversation about it rather than try to pretend like this stuff isn't going on because if we don't talk about it. Then it's all going to happen whether we like it or not. So Anthony, over the next decade, how do we get out of this debt? You can inflate your way out of it. You can debase the currency or you can default. I don't think default's an option. Do we inflate or debase? I mean, they have no choice. They're going to have to continue with inflation, right? I mean, that's the only thing that they can do. The central bank's got two tools. They can uh, manipulate interest rates or they can print money. They're going to print money until they can't print anymore, 
right? And the only reason why they're going to stop being able to print is because the thing they're printing isn't valuable anymore. And so literally, I think what ends up happening is we're watching uh, the same exact thing that has happened in every single currency that's ever failed. Every currency in the world was debased away. And it was through exactly what we're seeing. And so I think that this is no different. This is just history repeating itself over and over and over again. And you know, when we look around the world for the extreme example of Zimbabwe or Venezuela, et cetera, like how could that happen? right? Oh, it's because they had a dictator. But actually what ended up happening was they started to use monetary policy uh, and stimulus in a very unique, aggressive way to try to prevent ever having market corrections. But actually market corrections are natural. They should just let them play out. And yes, we have to take the short-term pain for the long-term gain. But instead, what we try to do is pretend like a market correction is an impossibility. And therefore, we'll just print a bunch of money, solve the problem in the short term. We kick the can down the road, but eventually we got to pay those debts. And, and I don't know when it's going to happen. I don't know if it's this time or you know five crashes from now. But at mm-hmm. some point, we got to pay those debts. And, and ultimately, I think in my lifetime, the US dollar is not going to be the global reserve currency. Mm-hmm. With this most recent shock, I don't see a plausible path to the Eurozone sticking together. Germany's not going to come in and back Italy out of essentially what they need to be back out of. And what that leaves is a massive gap for a country like China to come in and provide you know, infrastructure and take over and you know, say, we want this seaport for the next 100-year lease and basically take over in places where some people may or may not want them to take over. How does this affect a geopolitics for the next decade, two decades and longer? Yeah, look, there's two components to the geopolitics stuff that I pay attention to. One is demographics and two is playbook, right? And demographically, uh, China is basically doing what the U.S. did, you know, 50 years ago, right? They've got a much younger population um, and kind of the way that they're, they're growing. Nigeria is another country, right, that demographically uh, looks a lot like America used to look. Uh, but then the United States uh, is a little bit behind Italy, but Italy is probably the most egregious in terms of super old population. The U.S. is getting there with the baby, uh, baby boomer generation, et cetera, uh, people getting married later, having less kids, all that kind of stuff. And so what I think you see is demographics tend to signal what happens to a country. And we've seen it over and over and over again, right? Japan's a great example of this. Um, and so the U.S. is just naturally getting older, and therefore you're seeing their response in the economy to that. Um, but the playbook is also really important. So um, you know, where is China making investments right now compared to the U.S.? Well, China's actually making a lot of infrastructure investments. China's making a lot of investments in uh, disruptive technologies, innovation, right? You know, artificial intelligence, all these things that sound a lot like what the U.S. did with the internet, right? And kind of uh, all of the disruptive technologies and the um, uh, industrial revolution and like all of that stuff that the U.S. really hung its hat on and built this global superpower on. Now we're getting more from a capitalist society, switching more to socialist. We're doing more wealth redistribution than wealth creation. And what you're seeing is a lot of wealth creation and not a lot of wealth uh, redistribution happening in China and other countries around the world. And so again, it's scary if you're sitting in the United States, like, holy shit, are we quote unquote losing our power? But that's a natural thing that happens, right? It's just it, demographics and playbook. Anthony Cohen, there's got to be a way to reverse that. There's no way with a president obsessed with winning, there's no way he'd be okay with that kind of statement of we're just okay losing power in our number one place in the world. I, I, I don't think that they're okay with it, right? And really, frankly, there, there's a couple of things that they can do. I think that they're probably not the best ideas uh, from their seat. So something that you could do is you could go to war right? And basically, if you conquer somewhere else, then all of a sudden you control them, right? And you preserve your power. I don't think that we're going to go to war with China, right? I don't think that's a good idea. War also creates jobs. Creates jobs, stirs economic activity, all that kind of stuff. Instead, what I think is rather than um, take this approach of like, what can we go somewhere else and do? 
right? And, and, uh, and affect change. Instead, we should look internally and say, how can we affect change here? And the ways that you do that, again, is you change incentives. You empower the entrepreneurs, right? You empower the people who can drive innovation. Then you say, as a country, we are going to heavily invest in innovation and disruptive technology. And we believe the best path to doing that is putting resources in the hands of our smartest, most ingen- um, the people with the most ingenuity, and then we're going to get out of their way. And if the United States took that approach, we then could go compete globally. And so it's kind of like us looking around the room and saying, who's our best players, right? We're a sports team. Who's our best players? Let's put them on the floor. Let's make sure they got all the training, all the resources they need, and they're going to go play the game for us. Mm -hmm. Instead, what we have is we've got the government going and playing the game for us. And I joke all the time when people say like, we should tax billionaires, right? You know, more money. I always joke and I say, okay, so hold on, let me get this straight. You want to take money from the greatest wealth allocators or, or capital allocators and give it to the people who are notoriously the worst capital allocators in the world. That sounds like wealth destruction to me right? Mm-hmm. Instead, reverse that. And again, it's not a thing, about, it's not a political thing. It's just, we have to invest in innovation. And in order for innovation to occur, you got to get the right people with the right resources and then get out of their way. And I think that we would have a shot. I just don't think that that's a narrative that politicians want to share. I don't think that's a narrative that gets you reelected. I think that what ends up happening is you got to stand up there and say, I can solve your problems, not I know the person who can solve your problem and then I'm going to get out of their way. And so yeah. it's just a whole lot of incentives. I mean, don't, I mean, don't, there's a lot of people talking about on the back end of this, you're going to see a massive infrastructure bill passed, you know, to go to people and say, listen, almost X prize model, go to the moon kind of model. Listen, a billion dollars, the first company that builds a high speed rail from LA to New York. And you can get people across country in three hours or less. Whoever does it first, here's three, you know, here's an incentive of a billion dollars. I mean, is that kind of what you mean when you say turn inside and rely on our local entrepreneurs? I mean, if they did that, that'd be fantastic, right? And, and at the end of the day, right, is who would you rather bail out? Like this is, I, I was having this conversation with somebody. Would you rather bail out Boeing or would you rather take the three or $5 billion or whatever it would you know, cost and go give it to a bunch of professional venture capitalists to so go, go give the Sequoia benchmark and Andreessen and say, we want to invest dollar, uh, dollar to dollar with you in the next you know, 50 deals you do over the next three years. And instead, what we're going to do is we're going to go invest in highly innovative companies. And by the way, 10% of the capital you invest has to be in the airline industry. Yeah. Right? Something like that, where all of a sudden you're saying, look, we're not going to bail out the big overbloated corporation. And so we're going to go invest in the innovation. Because actually, at the end of the day, what happens is if you get the right innovators building, they'll create more jobs in the corporations. Well, mm-hmm. Right? Because here's the thing that's really scary is look at like the car manufacturers. I think the, um, the largest car manufacturer shut down their... Uh, manufacturing facilities. They laid off like 150,000 people or so. Uh, and I may be a little bit wrong on the numbers, but that gen- general ballpark. How many of those jobs are going to come back? When they go to rehire people, are they going to hire 150,000 people again? Or are they going to hire 100,000 or 80,000? Or maybe they'll hire 200,000. I don't think we know. My guess is it's going to be less than the number of people they left off. So actually, what we're going to see is a net loss of job opportunities over the lifetime of this crisis. Whereas if you're investing in the innovator, they're going to create jobs. It's going to be a net gain in uh, job opportunities. And the really, really successful ones become the Amazons, the Googles, the Facebooks of the world, et cetera, that employ hundreds of thousands of people each. And I think that's how you really drive innovation and growth in a country. Before we talk about currencies, Bitcoin, alternative asset classes, and potentially where you're investing today, if I asked you to name the kind of the top three areas from an infrastructure perspective that you would love to see the U.S. government incentivize locally, local entrepreneurs, the musks of the world, you know, people might say 5G, high-speed rail, supersonic jets, things like that. What are the three things that you would say we really should push here in the domestically? 
Yeah, that's a great question. Um, definitely artificial intelligence and kind of all of the data stuff is going to be super important. I think that's kind of like a base layer thing um, uh, across the uh, the, the uh, multiple industries. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually think that uh, healthcare and education I would put together, right? That's kind of a core uh, competency, I think, um, where there's a lot of innovation that can occur and also can be uh, quite uh, beneficial to a country. And then the third is uh, crypto, right? And crypto has a whole bunch of different facets. Uh, But ultimately, what crypto is, in my opinion, is all about automation, right? And the ability for machines to talk to machines and have automated everything from payments to transactions to uh, the sharing of data, et cetera. And so what you end up getting is this like crypto slash automation bucket where if you're the best in the world at uh, artificial intelligence, if you're the best in the world at education uh, and healthcare, and you're the best in the world at this automation slash crypto bucket, you're probably going to be the most productive country in the world. Right. Mm -hmm. I tend to think that we are uh, okay, right? Like average to above average uh, in all three of those buckets today. Uh, But there's a lot of room for improvement. uh, And I I don't think that we're the best at any of those. And so being the best at one of them would be a, a step up from where we are. Being the best at all three of them would be ideal. Wrapping up over here in the next 10 minutes. So diving here in on the crypto stuff for a second. So when you look at alternative assets, obviously you're always going to get gold as a sense of like how scared are people. 1600 bucks an ounce, I think this morning. Crypto up from 3,800 bucks up to like seven today, right? $7,000. We have a halving coming up. Uh, you know, first off, describe what a halving actually means to my audience. And then two, I mean, do you ever see a case where there is so much money printed in the US that people just completely lose confidence and you see a majority of people start shifting into, you know, an alternative method like, like Bitcoin and crypto. Yeah. So, uh, the Bitcoin having reward is basically this idea that, um, 21 million Bitcoin were quote unquote created is one way to think about it. And 50 Bitcoin every 10 minutes was distributed to people who ran the network started in uh, 2008, 2009. And so that 50 Bitcoin was given out 10 minutes, 50 the next 10 minutes, 50 the next 10 minutes. That went on uh, every single day, every 10 minutes for four years. After the four-year mark, uh, approximately, uh, it was cut from 50 Bitcoin to 25. So it was half. That Bitcoin reward, that 10-minute reward was half from 50 to 25. That then went on for uh, four years. It then was cut to 12.5. Again, cut by 50%. In May 2020 will be the next one. It will get cut from 12.5 to 6.25 Bitcoin every 10 minutes. So on a daily basis, right now, there's 1,800 Bitcoin that are created every day and put into the market. Uh, that will get cut from 1,800 to 900 in May 2020. And the reason why that's important, especially given the macro backdrop, go back to 2008, 2009 with gold. Gold's a safe haven asset. It's got an inflation hedge to it. Uh, in 2008, there was a liquidity crisis, and gold sold off 30% in uh, the summer of 2008, right? Dropped 30%. It ended the 2008-2009 crisis from the end of 2006 to 2011 up 300%. So even though it drew down 30% during the liquidity crisis, the safe haven asset worked. The inflation hedge worked, right? It's up 300% when all the quantitative easing got announced, et cetera. And so very similarly, where are we right now? We just had a liquidity crisis. Gold, Bitcoin, real estate, equities, treasuries, everything sold off, right? Dollar strength. But no, gold, but gold didn't. Well, like back in, back in 08, it went down to, it went like from 1100 down to like 800. And then to your point over the next, you know, 2010, 2011, it shot up like 300%. You didn't see gold take a sharp drop over the past two months. So here, here's the best part. So gold was down 12%. Bitcoin was down about 35%. Uh, equities were down about uh, 25, 30%. And Bitcoin actually at one point drew down all the way 50%, right? And it ended kind of around 30%. 
And so what ends up happening is volatility works both on the upside and downside, right? Gold's actually really, really stable. And that's mm-hmm. where we're going to kind of fluctuate between 1400, 1600, you know, over the last couple of years. And so what happened is gold drew down about 12%. And now I think it's about flat to maybe a little positive for the year, right? Whereas Bitcoin's about flat, give or take, depending on the day. Uh, equities are still down, you know, 15, 20%, depending on how you look at it, et cetera. So when you see those drawdowns, what happens is on the recovery, right? In the deflationary uh, environment, those asset prices sell off. Gold only sold off 12%. It actually performed the best out of almost all assets, right? Yeah, you didn't see the kind of drop you saw in gold like you did in 2008. Absolutely. So now what happens is they're going to have to flood the market to then weaken the dollar. Those asset prices will all rise. I actually think equities, gold, Bitcoin, real estate, everything will appreciate in price at, from here. Now we might go down more or whatever, but over the next five years, prices will be higher than they are today because we'll go back into an inflationary environment. Now the question becomes always, well, what asset will outperform the rest, right? And so that's where it goes into volatility works both upside and downside. Mm-hmm. So if gold only drew down 12%. When we then go into an inflationary environment, again, because it's so stable, my opinion is that it'll probably go, it'll crack 2000, but it won't go past 2,500, right? So we'll kind of end up in like a 2000, $2,500 uh, gold price point. Equities will rally. There, I'm sure in the future we will get another all-time high of equities, but I think it's you know five, six, ten years out, whatever it is. Um, but there will be some benefit to equities over the next two to three years. So call mm-hmm. that, you know, you'll see the 30, 40, 50 percent type increase. Bitcoin, though, is really unique right now in that it has all of the same sound money principles as gold. The same reason why people ran to gold in 2009 to 2011 to uh, get the inflation hedge, people will go seek out Bitcoin, I believe. It may not be as many people as seek out gold, or maybe it's more, we don't know yet. Mm -hmm. But as people go seek out the sound money principles of Bitcoin, at that exact moment, in May 2020, we are going to see 50% of the incoming supply get cut in half. So go back to 2008, 2009. Imagine when everyone ran to gold in 09 to 11, if 50% of gold miners shut off their operations. So the second that gold became more attractive, 50% of the incoming supply went away. You take a scarce asset and make it scarcer, obviously, because the demand increases, you get a supply and demand shock at the same time, price would have gone even higher than it did over 1800. And so I think what's going to happen with Bitcoin here is the same thing. We get people who are running from inflation, they're going to seek sound money. Bitcoin's actually more accessible in many cases than gold is. People will start buying up Bitcoin, but at the same time, you get That's that the demand, demand side. Up, the demand shock of more people want this asset to hide from inflation. You're going to get a supply shock with 50% of the incoming supply going away. And so I call this the rocket fuel for Bitcoin, where I think that from now where we're recording this in April of uh, 2020, I think that by the end of 2021, we'll see Bitcoin hit $100,000 price point, which sounds crazy for most assets, right? To see something do 10x or more uh, in such a short period of time. Based on the historical volatility of Bitcoin, it's actually pretty common um, and would be right on par with what it's done uh, through previous boom and bust cycles. And therefore, when you lay in the macro uh, backdrop with kind of the traditional uh, movements of Bitcoin, I think that my confidence level has actually increased that this is going to happen by the end of next year. Mm -hmm. When the last halving happened, which I think you just said was back in 2016 from 25 down to 12.5, essentially per block or down to 1800 per day. Did you see essentially a doubling of the price of Bitcoin? Like did the halving actually equal a double, double price? Yeah. So, uh, if I remember all of the data correctly, and sorry, I'm doing this off the top of my head, but yeah, yeah, yeah. before the first halving, uh, Bitcoin was hanging out around like six bucks, like like uh, three to six bucks, somewhere in there. And then the halving occurred. By the time the next halving came, it was hanging out around $600. But now what that means is there had been these massive boom cycle, right? So it had gone from like three bucks all the way up to 1200, crashed back down to 200, but then kind of oscillated around the $600 price. 
We get the, the next halving. We then went all the way up to 20,000, right? It dropped back down to 3,200. We're hanging out right around 7,000 now. Yeah. My guess is what's going to happen again is we'll get the halving today. We'll get some massive boom, right? That's why 100,000 plus price point. Uh, then we'll get a massive drop again, you know, three, four years from now. Uh, and then we'll hang out. My guess is somewhere in like the 50 to $70,000 range before the next halving. Mm-hmm. So what you end up doing is you're almost like adding a zero every time to the number. Uh, but because the supply is programmatic, right? With gold, there's two variables. There's the supply of gold and the demand of, of gold. We always model what we think the supply is. And we've got some data points that kind of suggest it. And then we try to guess what the demand is. With Bitcoin, we have 100% confidence in what the supply is. It's programmatic and it's fully transparent. So now all we have to do is actually just model the demand. And so what you see is a lot of these stock to flow models and um, co-integration models, et cetera, that are used in gold apply to Bitcoin and are actually more accurate in Bitcoin because one side of the equation is transparently known with 100% certainty. And all you have to model is the demand. And given the macro backdrop, I think demand uh, expectations as they stand today are actually low because more people are going to come in due to that inflation and seeking that sound money principle. Even if you ignore right the demand side of things, though, you, you obviously know with 100% certainty what's happening on the supply side shock, right? Isn't this the same thing as like when you're trying to make money in a, pro, in a public equity like, you know, um, Disney, uh, and, and you know that they're going to buy back 50% of their stock, right, in a month. If you knew that before everyone else and it wasn't priced in the market, you'd buy today and ride the thing up. The thing with this is everyone knows the having is coming. Isn't it already priced in? Yeah. So, so I think that this is a big misnomer in the space, right? So like I talk to people all the time that have Bitcoin, but don't fully understand what the having is, right? So like usually they've heard about it, but they don't actually know when it is or how it works. And then they definitely don't understand why it makes the price go up, right? Mm-hmm. So like it's not 100% of people who hold Bitcoin understand fully what the having is. So there is some arbitrage there of people who already own Bitcoin who either don't know about it, don't understand it, uh, or, or don't know that it's coming up. So that's one piece. The second is you can't price in people who, let's say tomorrow, buy Bitcoin and have never heard of Bitcoin today, right? So obviously you get kind of new entrants every day. And then also the people who are going to buy after the halving, who all they're doing is they're coming in, they contribute to the increase in demand, but they don't have anything to do with that change in supply. And so what ends up happening is there is the likelihood that the core users of Bitcoin know that the halving is coming. They've started to buy a lot over the last two, two and a half years because they believe that the halving will do what it's done in the past. They believe in supply-demand economics, but it's not 100% priced in or kind of completely accurate simply because what you're getting is a whole bunch of people who don't fully understand it. And then you also get an influx of new users, uh, some of it due to uh, the inflation stuff, and then some of it due just to pure kind of everyday net new gain of users that end up pushing that price up given this, the drop in supply. Anthony, we covered a heck of a lot in an hour, I think. Man, we touched power, politics, monetary policy, Bitcoin. This was good stuff, man. If people want to argue with you about anything you said, where's the best place to find you online? Unfortunately for me, they, they find me too often. Uh, <laughs> but uh, on Twitter, I'm just uh, at A. Pompliano. All right, guys, there you have it. Check Anthony out on Twitter. Anthony, what's the name of your podcast in case people want to go check it out? Uh, the Pomp Podcast. Guys, there you have it. A- Anthony, appreciate your time. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks so much.